This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Forest action is climate action. You all know that. And today's show includes a long interview with Dr. Colette Thompson. She's a vet and a tree protector in Tasmania. She was arrested with Bob Brown just recently. As she says... I, I, I don't know a lot about humans. That's why I studied animals. <laughs> but I do think, you know, some, some people are inherently, you know, they want something to fight. Um, but we we make sure that we use our energy creatively but um, peacefully. We'll continue this show with news from Wollongong. Dr Freya Croft is working on how to achieve the social licence in this coal mine country for a big vision offshore wind farm, which has stirred up anxiety and hostility. And on this topic, we'll start with John Grimes. When Barnaby Joyce and a group of coalition senators rallied in front of Parliament, calling for a moratorium on all new renewable projects, he said their rhetoric was toxic. My plan is not to let another generation of people be poisoned by the narratives of fear. John Grimes is with us now. He's the CEO of the Smart Energy Council, and I know he's in the thick of organising their major conference in Sydney. It's not too late to register for Wednesday the 6th and Thursday the 7th of March, and it's free. John, I've invited you because of the reckless renewables rally in Canberra. Why were you so alarmed and dismayed? You would have thought, Vivian, that following the last federal election, that the coalition would have learnt that Australians are demanding real action on climate. And tying us into pro-fossil agenda is just not working anymore. You know, they know the huge environmental and economic benefits. So, you know, we, we thought that after that big loss that they would kind of reassess, that they would recast themselves and they'd come out with a sensible position. And instead what they've done if they've doubled down on their previous approach and it's it's kind of it's just so I, I, i'm more disappointed than angry you know it's sort of like it's like really do we really have to do this again so to see uh the national party and the liberal party standing up calling for a moratorium on, on all renewable projects in australia so that means stop renewables right, um, calling for um, uh, basically to roll back all of the progress is just unbelievably bad. It's playing to a, a real base political narrative, a small group of people who are just attracted by the ideology of opposing renewables and tying ourselves to fossil fuels. But, but Vivian, my view is we can't afford to ignore this because they may well be well out of touch, but this is the alternate government of Australia. When we have the alternate Deputy Prime Minister of Australia calling for a moratorium on renewable development. We've got to take that seriously. Yeah, well, Alan Jones uh, at a Sydney anti-wind rally, he, I think the people there were mainly farmers, but he got loud, loud cheers of approval. Everything he said they were so excited by 
Well, he heaped corn, a scorn, sorry, on Chris Bowen, our energy minister, and he said, this is a quote, we're not here to debate the industry, we're here to destroy it. Well, what would you say to Alan Jones? Yeah, look, I, I think it's just a bit cynical because, look, in regional communities, there is certainly, um, you know, some concerns about new transmission lines, about big projects and developments. And we all of us need to be sensitive to the needs of rural Australians and make sure that as a community, we bring everybody with us. Um, but for for politicians to exploit that sort of the, the anxiety around what does change look like and how's that going to impact us, to really whip that up and try and turn that into a political movement that stops the transition, which is just absolutely vital for our economy, for bills and electricity prices, and for the environment, is just uh, cynical and, and down, downright evil, Vivian. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as I came to join this call, just on my radio now in the kitchen, uh, I tuned into Parliament and there was someone haranguing, I didn't catch his name, but haranguing about how people are so worried about the cost of living and they can't afford renewables. It's just so... You've been in this for so many years. I've been doing it for about 12 years. And I know these debates about, especially about wind energy. Do you remember when it was the wind sickness and all the, you know, people worried they were getting headaches because of it? Well, you know, we've been through so many iterations and climate change is still being turbocharged. I'm very worried about Victorian bushfires right now. Little towns, country towns being absolutely threatened by a massive bushfire. Well, we've got to do something about it and change the rhetoric. And I know that you, once we're in the Air Force, you've been a diplomat, you are very diplomatic, and your conference, you do more than practically anyone, I think, your group do more than anyone to promote renewable energy and the training that goes with it. So I'm sure you think strategically. And some of the same senators who were around back there and, you know, all the anti-wind and anti-renewables before, they're still in Parliament. They were there for the voice against the voice to parliament they're the same sort of populist rhetoricians so some of them for years like matt canavan others are new like jacinta um nampajin price so how can their campaign be disarmed thinking strategically how can they be disarmed or defeated we have to shine a spotlight on them. And here's a great example. There's a debate currently about new vehicle efficiency standards in Australia. The government wants to, for the first time, actually impose some emissions controls around new vehicles on Australian roads. And, uh, you know, we, we're circulating a video at the moment where we, we, we've got Paul Fletcher, who, who was then, uh, you know, a, a cabinet minister in government in 2018, saying that um, when the United States uh, imposed these efficiency uh, standards, there was basically no change to the price of vehicles and no change to, you know, the sales of the really popular vehicles, which were a lot of the, the larger SUVs and utes and that sort of thing. Um, fast forward to 2024, and in the context of the Dunkley by-election, now the same person is saying that um, that um, that um, the cost of new uh, vehicles in Australia, utes and so forth, um, is expected to rise by up to $25,000 per vehicle. This is just rank hypocrisy. And so, um, you know, yes, I mean, some people will be sucked in by this kind of rhetoric. But, you know, remember the time when they told us that the electric vehicles would ruin the weekend, Vivian? Mm -hmm. uh, and then the following day, there's videos of of um, EVs towing 747 jets, right? You know, it's just complete rank nonsense. Uh, and I think Australians are smarter than it, but we can't be complacent. We've got to actually call it out and stand against it. And I'll tell you the other insidious messaging that's coming from the coalition is around nuclear energy. Because people, a lot of people are like, oh, well, nuclear is zero carbon. So, you know, it, it needs to be kind of something we consider. The reason that the coalition is talking about nuclear is because the the, the 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 thinking goes like this keep the existing coal-fired power stations in place keep putting masking tape and sticky tape on them just keep them because they're really old clapped out and at end of life keep them going until the end of the 2030s and then nuclear will will come over the the hill and save us all but actually the real motivation is Let's keep coal in place and keep renewables at bay. That is what's really happening. It's not about nuclear at all. It's not about actually trying to solve the problem. It's about trying to keep um, renewables at bay. And one of the quick point, uh, you know, Vivian, you raised a very important point about economics. If you've got rooftop solar, 
You can buy electricity from the grid for about 35 cents per kilowatt hour, or you can make it yourself for about four. That's the quantum of difference, right? Large scale solar and wind, if they're producing for the grid, we can make coal-fired power from our very old clapped out coal-fired power stations that are already fully amortized, right? At about $85 per megawatt hour. We can make electricity from solar and wind at about $45 per megawatt hour. It is by far the cheapest and the cleanest. And why wouldn't we transition as quickly as possible? Yeah. Well, the Smart Energy Council is one, I think, as I said, it's the most creative and energetic groups. I go to different conferences and I love your conference because you promote, there's a whole series listeners where they, a whole sort of section of the big conference centre where all these workers, I don't know, they must be installers or electricians or people who need upgrading of their skills. And there's all these work uh, tutorials for them. And there's another whole big room, which is the political side where you have every politician you can think of and every thinker like last year Saul Griffiths you know on the big switch down at the Illawarra um, and and his theories and the whole, taking it to scale so this is a very good conference and a very good council representing that whole industry I think don't you you don't represent just solar installers or l l uh, domestic level but the big industry and storage and hydrogen and you know as it grows you represent them and um so I think you promote the transition that we all need to see, but are you lobbying effectively enough compared to the fossil fuel and these nuclear lobbies? Because they are getting the platforms, they're getting the voice out. Are you as effective, do you think? Well, yeah, let, let me talk about the event just for a moment before I come to that. So this is a festival of smart energy, the electrification agenda, the, uh, you know, uh, the electric vehicles, the heat pump technology, everything we're going to do to transition. 130 expert speakers over two days, um, everything from uh, federal ministers, former prime ministers, Craig Rucastle, we've got Julia Zemir. We've got a whole bunch of thinkers um, out Wednesday and Thursday um, next week in Sydney. Uh, and so entirely free of charge. You do need to register, come along, spend the day. Uh, you'll be blown away. So it's a, it's a fantastic event. To your question, though, my view, I want to make the Smart Energy in, um, Council the most, um, the most potent um, peak industry body in the country and uh, already the most influential. And already we are seeing that that, that, is, that is really where we're positioning ourselves. We are on the inside of discussions at a federal and state level right around the country. We're, we are trusted advisors because we provide good, you know, uh, independent advice about, about the transition. Governments really rely on our work. Um, and governments also know that if they don't take us seriously, we will fight for our industry. We will mount political campaigns and we will hurt them politically. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's sort of a carrot and stick, Vivian, uh, that, but the formula is working pretty well and I'm pretty pleased with where we're placed. That's not to say we're complacent. Um, and the other thing I'd just say is that the fossil fuel industry is very powerful, right? Billions, trillions of dollars globally globally in that, you know, the incumbent industry. But the renewables industry is growing very rapidly. And we're sort of like we're at the teenager stage, you know, a, a 16 or 17 year old boy where you've kind of got the body of a man, but kind of, you know, the mentality of, of a child. That's kind of where we are. We've got to learn how to harness our power because we are powerful. We represent actually one of the biggest employer groups in the country. And what we do will impact every part of the Australian economy. Yeah, well, you do represent a lot of people. And you've said um, that the smart energy workforce now is about 120,000 people, but you can see it growing to 600,000. What sort of training is needed? Yeah, training and skills is absolutely critical. So, you know, we've got to have the workforce to push this through. And one of the our very first initiatives in this is, is our gender action plan. Um, actually, Vivian, we're, we're quite ashamed about our gender um, uh, statistics in our industry. Only 30% of women in the entire, sorry, 30% of workers in the entire industry are women. And when it comes to solar installers, it's only 2%. Mm. Like it's diabolically bad. We can't make the transition 
of the whole economy quickly if we don't use all of our human resources. And so we need to make this an inclusive, supportive, um, long-term industry for all Australians um, to swing in behind. And we need to create those international connections as well because we've got a big piece of work to do and I don't want to be slowed down by just not having the people to do it. No, and I'm seeing that when I go around like the Illawarra wind, offshore wind, you know, they're, they're projecting that, the renewable energy zone. But I don't think all the people I've spoken to, I still haven't found someone who's got the blueprint for transitioning the workers. They're still mm. shutting down coal mines and leaving people just with an email saying, you know, you've lost your job. And, and, and that's critical. We, you know, we're going to show not just through words, but actually through demonstration. We need to actually create those jobs, retrain those people and transition them across. And when people see actually there is a secure pathway, a good job for me and my family, for my for my kids and so forth. That's when we that's when we really capture the hearts and minds. And uh, that's a, an important piece of work. Yeah. Last question. Your conference, I'm, I'm going to see if I can come to some of the sessions, but it's a terrific thing. So I always find it overwhelming. There's so many people there, all these bright young people with innovative stuff to show technology. I get totally tired because it's so sort of exciting. But if I was an insider, I'm sure I'd stay there the whole the two days. But I like the political talks and there is a political dimension to your smart energy um, conference. What trends are you seeing? So um, the good news is that we're making enormous progress. So, you know, if you think about where we were only a few short years ago, um, you know, we're now talking about a $20 billion rewiring the nation initiative. We've got the capacity investment scheme, which will bring on 34 gigawatts of new renewables and storage. Now, Vivian, just to put that into perspective, the total generation capacity of the entire energy network in Australia is about 65 gigawatts. So 34 gigawatts of new renewables is absolutely massive. We're seeing movement on, on uh, vehicle uh, you know, standards and uh, and that work. Um, but of course, there's still more to be done. Um, you know, we're pushing uh, the federal government hard to put in place a really strong emissions reduction target by 2035. Uh, we know we've got the 43% by 2030, and we're working hard towards that, but we've got to do more. We've got to go faster. And particularly in areas that save money help the environment they're the things that have got to go first so our our sector is so critical to the transition um so i, I am optimistic i'm seeing massive movement in in queensland uh, in victoria in fact right around the country state governments get this and they're, and they're really moving apace but no complacency because we know there are strong powerful political forces that want to trip us up and derail this progress and uh, and we can't be complacent about what that uh, what they what they're planning to do so what would you say to activist groups? You know, they, they're very prepared to campaign and lobby and so on. What would you say to the, the grassroots people? There are two things I think that are important message. So as the as these issues arise, put the pressure on and create the space for governments to move. Because if the if if they feel that the community is is already there, then it's very low risk for them to kind of step into that space. So you know that activity, that grassroots, that community activity is so important. The second thing I'd say is when governments do something good, pile on in support, right? <laughs> because sometimes I know that the politicians feel a little bit not abandoned, but a little bit lonely. They're like, well, you asked us to do this and then we did it and then there were kind of crickets, you know? And so uh, the the way you uh, train them in 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 really <laughs> getting onto the role is is uh, give them some praise when they do something good. Both <laughs> things are important. Thank you. Let's train the politicians. That's Thanks it. Very That's much, it. John. That's John CEO of the Smart Energy Council. And please come to their conference if you're in Sydney on Wednesday the 6th and Thursday the 7th of March. It's at that big conference centre in Darling Harbour. Thanks, John. Thanks, Vivian. My name's Daryl Best. I worked all my working career in coal mines. I am now passionate about a transition to renewables and about saving our planet. And you are listening to the Climate Excellent Radio Show on Community Radio. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Here is Miguel Rios singing Too Much Talk. He's a new singer to me, and he's of Mexican and Yaqui heritage.
kind of talk that really will bring you sunstuck. It makes me go out walking in the cold to smother the fire burning me up whole. No, I will never be able to forgive myself. is with me from Wollongong University. She's with the Blue Energy Futures Lab and they are an interdisciplinary research team focused on new offshore industries such as wind farms. And Freya is working on the social dimensions of emerging offshore industries. She's a human geographer but the main reason I invited her was well she's a person after my own heart because she got an honours degree in history and I think that's important because we now have quite a long history of climate wars and mischievous forces counting on us forgetting the past. So I thought her perspective might be a bit of a tonic. So welcome, Freya. The Illawarra Renewable Energy Zone was declared this time last year. Why is it so suitable for an offshore wind farm? Yeah, um, thanks for having me, Vivian. So Wollongong is really suitable for offshore wind for a number of factors. Consistent winds off the coast here, um, as well as it sort of not being too too deep, um, too far off. So the continental shelf being sort of a decent distance from the shore, and also being close to people. So obviously we're we're very close to Sydney, as well as having um, a large population on the coast here as well, and being close to industry that can support it. So there's um, existing steelworks infrastructure, as well as um, Port Kembla. So there's already sort of existing infrastructure to make it easy to transition to that sort of to that industry. Industry and to develop an industry in this area, Wollongong sort of is quite a logical spot for offshore right. wind. So the offshore wind, green steel, green hydrogen, these are all called emerging industries in Australia, but they're, they're mm -hmm. common overseas. Do you think the hostility we hear from politicians and from these so-called grassroots groups, do you think it's orchestrated or copied from overseas? You can see similarities um, to sort of some of the discussions happening in Australia as to what's happening in the US, you know, particularly in relation to whale migrations. There's been some a lot of discussion in both countries around that. Um, but, yeah, whether or not it's sort of discourse that's been borrowed from other contexts, I am not entirely sure. I mean, I think that these debates and discussions have been ongoing in so many different places and across different times that, that there will be similarities between them in, in lots of different places. There are anti-wind farm campaigns around the world. They've been going on for ages. I remember when we talked to Dr Simon Chapman at least 10 years ago and he turned himself inside out trying to contradict them. 
uh, thing called the wind farm sickness. And in the end, I had the impression that it occurred where people felt they hadn't been consulted and also mm. where a group called Landscape Guardians were active. So now we've got groups called Reckless Renewables. They've got rallies in Canberra and in Sydney. No coastal wind farms. I think that's operative down at Wollongong. And a group called Just Stop It. So can you explain how these fear campaigns catch on? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the um, discussions in both, you know, people who are against um, these renewables and people who are for them, I think a lot of it is based on our sort of values and our emotions. So a lot of this, these discussions are inherently based in our in our emotions. So I think sort of a lot of what we see um, and what we saw in Wollongong in response to the declaration or the announcement, sorry, of the proposed zone um, was you know, almost sort of a grief response in that people are really concerned that the, what the values that they hold dear in terms of the ocean um, are being sort of challenged by by new industry coming in and changing sort of what they know things to be. And I think, you know, that essentially, yeah, a lot of these concerns that people have are grounded in that, yeah, that deep emotional connection to the ocean and, and to the, a deep emotional connection to place and, and how they know a place. So I do think that, yeah, there's a lot of emotion in both in both campaigns for and against renewables um, and to me I think that's a really interesting kind of area that we need to be to be looking at a little more and sort of trying to phrase the discussion when it comes to thinking about transitioning to renewables and to sort of thinking about this offshore wind debates trying to phrase it instead of sort of support and opposition trying to think of it more as a discussion and sort of th- seeing how that might actually help us navigate some of these conflicting views on how things should should be because I think we've seen it in so many different industries and so many different debates of sort of even things like the the voice referendum debates, you see these really intense polarisation of arguments and it sort of just ends up in quite conflicted discussions where it just seems like it's really difficult to kind of construct a a path forward when the sort of discourse is on that yes or no and it's that really binary way of thinking. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know in terms of the misinformation sort of exactly what that's based off and why it's succeeding so well it is definitely concerning I think um, I think perhaps the messaging people are using in terms of addressing issues of miscommunication uh, sorry misinformation we sort of just giving people facts it seems like that isn't necessarily the best way to approach this kind of thing so for me I would sort of like to see it turn into more of a discussion rather than this just debate where we're sort of trying to counter misinformation by just throwing facts at people not listening to their point of view I think there has to be sort of a lot more listening on both sides of the of the coin and um yeah a lot more sort of constructive approaches to to navigating these issues because it just seems like they're becoming more and more intense in every new sort of element and area of change which again I'm sure these things have been around for, for a really long time but to me it does seem that they're gaining in their sort of passion behind them I guess when Barnaby Joyce had that uh, rally in Canberra just on the first day of Parliament, the head of the mm-hmm. Smart Energy Council said, this is toxic rhetoric, this is terrible. We, you know, these people have got to exactly do, as you say, engage in listening. But I want to know, do you know, well, what's happened in previous campaigns? I don't know if you've studied it in other communities, but this populist rhetoric is a feature of it as far as I can see. I've seen images of mass whale deaths from the United States, you know, from the east coast of the United States, predicted mass mass whale deaths when a wind farm offshore was proposed. And these images have been circulated here on social media. When I came down to Wollongong and I talked to some people of that group, Good for the Gong, and they said they Mm -hmm. had tried to have public meetings, but they were just disrupted by people being very rude and hostile. There was no question of listening or finding a middle ground there. Like what we're trying to sort of position ourselves as is sort of being able to be a trusted voice for the community in that it's we want to listen to the concerns of the community, everyone on both sides of the of the sort of spectrum in terms of, of who wants what. We want to be able to sort of bring people together and actually chat to them and be the people who bring those ideas forward and sort of, yeah, I guess be the spokesperson for community because, you know, if we are to have the offshore wind farms here in Wollongong, there will inevitably be impacts, whether that's to, um, you know, both environmental and social, there will be impacts. And it's, I guess it's about navigating how we can can minimise those as well as sort of thinking about, well, what are the opportunities? What are the benefits? How can we sort of 
make this a positive thing for the community where there are people who are very hostile and very against this happening and there are people who are very for it obviously um so i think it's about trying to navigate a way with community to listen to everybody's concerns to bring people together to have those conversations and it's a really really difficult one and i i mean i don't know that there are examples of it happening well in other places it's something you know we really need to try and do a lot more but the traditional sort of mechanisms for decision making and for governance have not been like have not been like that. They've been very much more sort of consultation approaches where you see, you know, town hall meetings. And as we've seen here in Wollongong, those aren't working. They just <laughs> turn people against each other. They just sort of breed um, hostility and it's, you know, quite a, a disheartening kind of process and difficult thing to be to be involved in. So I think, yeah, we're really trying to kind of redo how we how we approach these issues and how we approach doing community engagement so that it's not just that kind of like question answer vicious debate approach but rather more sort of like thinking with community about what the future might look like and trying to sort of I guess co-design with community what community benefits might be what opportunities might be if we are to have these um, installed off our coast I guess trying to sort of shift the narrative from either supporting or not wanting offshore wind to to being more about okay say we do have it what can we do what what are the environmental components that we really want to see happen here or what are the social benefits that we really want to see happen here so it becomes a little bit more sort of opportunity focused rather than divisive fantastic all right thank you very much freya you fitted me in today very no. kindly with busy day and so we've been talking to dr freya croft from wollongong university about the Renewable Energy Zone offshore from Wollongong. Thanks, Freya. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. Breaking news from the Bob Brown Foundation, 19th of February. Bob Brown was arrested in the Styx Valley, Nutruita, Tasmania. His fellow forest defender, Dr Colette Harmson, is with me now. She's a veterinary doctor and I think will be well known to many listeners for her peaceful but dramatic protests, which landed her in jail. She and Bob were charged with trespass this time and released on bail. A third forest defender called Ali Ali Shah was remanded in custody. So hello, Colette, it's an honour for me to meet you. Tell us Hi, what... lovely to meet you. <laughs> And tell us what will happen between now and April the 29th when you and Bob Brown will appear in the Hobart Magistrates Court. Uh, so I guess between now and that time, um, we need to have legal representation when we go to court to um, to try and make a point that these forests shouldn't be logged during a climate emergency. Uh, and the ridiculousness of of what's going on in in Tasmania's and other other forests around Australia and around the world, and if places like Victoria and Western Australia can ban native forest logging all altogether because of the climate emergency and because its effect on the environment, mm -hmm. um, surely anyone that's still doing this kind of thing must be thinking the writing's on the wall. We've got to uh, put an end to this soon. Mm. Yeah. Will it be an election issue for the Tasmanian election coming up? Certainly for everybody I know, this is a big election issue, especially because Victoria's just made made the change and they've said no more native forest logging. Um, Tasmania's governments have been uh, quite conservative when it comes to that sort of thing and they are uh, very, very um, supportive of their timber industry despite the fact that um, the native forest industry, uh, timber industry, runs at a loss every year and 
is heavily subsidised by government. It, it just seems um, ludicrous that they don't put that money that they're losing into retraining those workers and finding them um, more sustainable jobs. Yeah, it's the same in New South Wales. But yeah. listen, I've seen pictures of those great big logs. I know they're called Giants of the Forest. They must feel like people to you, I think, if you're doing those long protests. they You must feel very personal towards them. What will happen if you're banned from going in there between now and April 29th? Who else will go in there? And, and is that going to be an ongoing protest? Natasha? I'm really hoping... Um, I'm really hoping that um, the protests we've been having just in the last week in the Styx Valley, um, those protests will ramp up because of the sheer size of the forest that's being decimated, mostly for chip. Um, there are some saw logs in there, but if you look at the size of those logs coming out, it's uh, absolutely... Um, it, it, to see them drive past on those trucks is heart-wrenching. Mm. Um, uh, myself and Bob Brown, as a result of our protest yesterday, we've both been banned from all um, private timber forest reserve land and um, all that land makes up at least, I think, 20% of Tasmania uh, mm. and we're not allowed there until our court date. Um, Ali Alicia is currently being held in remand um, pending um, seeing a magistrate about uh, his charges. Uh, he breached bail uh, this week because last week he was also arrested in the forests. And, uh, yes, this is definitely an election issue. I think people are shocked and outraged uh, once again to see the size of the trees that are being cut down uh, and the fact that Bob Brown came out and uh, and himself got arrested, uh, it shows that, you know, this is a significant issue and it's one that, you know, we can't just sweep under the carpet um, in the face of the global climate emergency. That's it. It's the global climate. That's what this program is, the Climate Action Show. But I see big banners saying protect forests, protecting forests equals climate action and I reckon a lot of people don't get that so can you speak to that how, you know, imagine in a court case how could you explain that those trees those forests trees connected into forests are our allies in the struggle to preserve the fairly benign climate we have now against the horrific climate chaos we're unleashing yeah, well, exactly how you just said it then, like that pretty much sums up how forests are an integral part of protecting against the, the climate emergency. But I think the problem here is that what's written down in law and what all the lawmakers and the magistrates and the lawyers and all the people making the decisions based on, on um, you know, all their written down laws and regulations, um, it doesn't fit into that context, the climate emergency is not something that has been thought out with the legal system in mind mm. and I think that's where we're falling short yeah. I remember years ago going around a, a forest in Victoria with a an expert on carbon sequestration and she was a scientist and she could measure the amount of carbon sequestered in the trees and I thought that was something well, that's like a, a cash value isn't it you can value this tree because it's got this much carbon um, mm. like an offset, you know, it seemed very materialistic, but still you could value the trees. And eventually the Victorian, they have pulled right back from that. And she was one of the people with some input into that. And I, I just wonder, you know, it's all very emotional. It's, the emotion is of this little group of citizens, you know, brightly dressed, dramatising, sitting up on tripods, doing everything you can to make this theatrical. But really it's just these individual citizens in a group pitched against just a commercial momentum that doesn't seem to have any brain. What what brainy thing can you say about climate change that, that the forests are obviously yeah. our friend in? Um, I think until we can... Um disengage politics from industry and have that um, completely dictating all our systems 
um, we're going to have a hard time of it because, you know, the the government supports the timber industry um, that are doing um, criminal acts of destroying the forest. But unless that is somehow written into law, then in our capitalist society, I guess it's going to be a bit of a hard push. Just the way government is so in the pockets of industry and though some of those industries aren't even connected with our country or with our people, yet uh, uh, parliaments and, uh, you know, all the subsidies and things go to people who who are doing the destroying. Um, and I, I guess we've got to change people's views on that so that they can see that that is a massive conflict of interest and say, and we don't support that kind of propping up of such damaging industries. This summer, wildlife are feeling the heat of climate change. Wildlife becomes stressed and unwell in hot weather and every summer Wildlife Victoria receives tens of thousands of calls for wildlife assistance. You can make a positive difference to the future of wildlife by donating to Wildlife Victoria. Your donation will help us rescue and care for heat affected native animals. The future of wildlife is in your hands. Donate to Wildlife Victoria at wildlifevictoria.org.au. Wildlife Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Bob Brown says he will challenge his bail conditions. They were basically to stay out of the forest, that Styx Valley Forest, wasn't it? And other bail conditions the same for you. And what, what will you both do about it? You know, is there some way to challenge it that won't get you in prison? So both of our bail conditions are all all state forests in Tasmania. So uh, both Bob and I are not allowed to visit any state forests, whether that's regional reserves, if it's um, you know driving through areas that have got working forests on other side and that sort of thing. We're not allowed to be found within them at all, and that is a very large part of Tasmania, especially when our work is so integrally linked with the conservation of those areas. Um, I don't. I can't speak on on behalf of Bob and what his specific mm. legal fight will be, um, but, but I've got a feeling he's going to be appealing to, um, you know, the the rights of of nature and and that you know everybody has a right to to visit the forests of the people, and that's yeah. what they are. Like these areas that Forestry Tasmania so heavily guards as their own property it's it's the people's forests it's state forest and um here they are controlling every single step that anyone can make near them including mm. protesting where we think that um what's going on defies the rules of nature yeah if it was all transferred into a parkland what would be the benefit of that you know if you just I mean I, i'm a dedicated it to park <laughs> i'm a I'm a veterinary scientist and so therefore my my focus and my special interest is is wildlife and animals. Mm. So of course I I see if it's all de- dedicated to that I see it as um habitat for all those fantastic species but more more of what we were talking before with um um helping prevent the ravages of the climate emergency by keeping these native forests intact. Um, yeah, so that's that's my take on it. Other people might see it for the... Yeah, well... Oh. That sort of thing. But uh, yeah. for me, it's very focused on the habitat, yeah. Just for, like, overseas listeners or even people in other parts of Australia mightn't really know Tasmania. It's a very moist forest, isn't it? You have had bad bushfires, but it, it's especially moist. If it's all intact, it's not likely to burn or not intruded on it. It's not so likely to burn. And that moist, unique forest, it, it really does seem to cover about, I don't know how much, a big part of the map of Tasmania. So where are these special forests that you want to preserve, the, the Tarkine and that? Just tell the overseas listeners on the map where it is. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the forest that Bob and I were arrested in, that's called the Styx Valley Forests, and they're kind of central and southern Tasmania. Uh, but um, there are absolutely magnificent forests all over Tasmania and they are a whole range of different forest types. In Takina Tarkine, there is cool temperate rainforest and that is the lush, beautiful forest with all the greens and the mosses and lots of rainfall. And um, we've been um, 
campaigning, they're really hard to protect those areas from, from logging and new mine projects. Uh, and, you know, that's that's just – they're the sort of forests that fairy tales are made of, but uh, <laughs> there's a whole lot of other forests in Tasmania that are – that are spectacular in other ways and they're not all as as wet and rainforesty. In central Tasmania, in the central highlands, we've got some really unique forests there because they're they're basically alpine. They're above 700 metres above sea level. And in most places in Tassie, you don't get large eucalypt forests growing with such abundance and, and ecological value as in an area called Wentworth Hills and the surrounding area in the um, central highlands. And that forest has been um, consistently logged and it's old growth and it's um, untouched and it's it's fantastic uh, forest. But um, most of it's behind locked gates and most of it's just being locked uh, without anyone even noticing what's happening. Um, and then, of course, there's the East Coast and uh, just inland, there's the Eastern Tiers and that that is much drier forest. And the special thing about those forests is you will find uh, swift parrots nesting and feeding in those areas um, mm. every year. And the swift parrot is um, is very endangered. There's meant to be about 600 left of them in the wild uh, and they target for their breeding and their habitat uh, flowering eucalypt. So anywhere where there's a, a forest of flowering eucalypts, and the eucalypts don't flower every year, so mm. they have to travel around and find where the best mm. places are. But those forests are also being completely decimated by forestry Tasmania. And those habitat trees, you know, you, you can't just chop down a tree and say another one will grow back. These habitat trees are hundreds of years old because they have to form hollows. And if those trees don't reach the age where they can form hollows, then they can't be used by the swift parrot to nest in. The media likes to focus on individuals, but I like the Bob Brown Foundation statement. I get it on every letter from them, which says, we're using ecological reality and optimism in an age of rapid destruction of the biosphere, attended by cynicism and pessimism. And I want to know, what's it like to be part of a big group empowered by those ideas? Because I do meet a lot of people who seem to be really weighed down by pessimism and apathy and cynicism. It's funny you should say that. I guess in um, maybe... 10 years ago and, and before, I was still very active, but I was very depressed about the state of the planet. And I did feel like what we were doing wasn't having any effect. And um, I think it's really easy to take a look at the situation and think that we aren't making a difference. But um, I, I think the only way to make a difference is to start trying. And once you start trying and you find the other people who are also compelled and um you know, um, excited about seeing if they can make a difference, you find the optimism. And uh, I have spent many, many years very depressed in the past. And uh, I just encourage people who are depressed to just keep going because it's worth finding that optimism and to come back and just say, well, I, I can do this and I am empowered by this. And, and I do feel like this is making a difference because what we're doing is trying to fight for a better planet for everyone. And, um, and yeah, I, I think, you know, maybe we don't have all the abilities that we do, like that, that the industries and the government has at their disposal to do the opposite. But, um, but just if we can all keep making little waves, I think we're going to make bigger waves and then eventually we're going to get system change and that's what we need. But you've stepped into that area which is getting you in jail getting these court orders, you know, ridiculous court orders, fancy banning you from so many forests and so many places for just doing a peaceful protest. Like it's very overkill, isn't it? The laws are over the top ridiculous. So they must be quite frightened of you. So you could say that that's one thing. They're really frightened. You know, they're frightened. But what would you say to get someone over the line who thinks, look, I can write letters to the Prime Minister, I can do all this, but I can't chain myself to something and get arrested? What would you say to them? So I, I would say to anyone who 
who who feels compelled to make a difference and do something. They don't have to get locked on. They don't have to get arrested. So, for example, um, I never thought I'd get arrested, and, and uh, that just wasn't an option for me. I worked for the government for many years. I saw people doing this, and I just thought they're all a bit mad. And uh, even if they are a bit mad, I think the difference that we can make by supporting them is a great thing. But I, I do want to say out there for anyone who's listening, if they are even slightly interested or motivated to to step out of their comfort bubble, that, yeah, they don't have to put themselves on the sharp edges of the machine. And one of the things that uh, we do a lot with the Bob Brown Foundation is uh, nonviolent direct action training. And it gives people a foundation to then grow uh, in the activism space and to find their little comfort zone. And then it's not as scary once you know how it all works. It's like, oh, well, that makes complete sense. We do this and then we do this and then this might happen. And, you know, we're, we're very organised and we have so many roles. They're not all scary roles. And um, I just think I'd really like to motivate more people to just try more little things. And uh, even, yeah, even if it's making people dinner who are going on an action and, taking out a pot for eight people and say, eat before you go on an action, you know, that's a, an amazing thing that people can contribute without being too scary. Yeah. But I do find that people who start small, they get a little taste, they get a toe in, and they do find that it's empowering. And even if they are scared and confused and, and not um, comfortable, the more they just kind of engage with us, the more they feel that it is actually something that they can be more and more involved in. And it's not really scary unless you wanted it, want it to be. Do you think, do you feel that it's like a war or in the ecosystem, you know, of human beings? I mean, there seems to be some people are dead set to be really destructive and pragmatic and materialistic and other people are more soulful or like you more scientific and more aware of all the eco connections and things but do you feel it's a war or where do you feel you fit in the the protesters I mean surely it's going to change as you said Western Australia and, so, and Victoria they've made the change they've probably done it out of total self-interest I hope they have, they have. but doesn't matter they They've been pushed across the line by lots of creatives and scientific and just pure protest people. But where do you fit into that? Do you feel like a warrior against the people who get a, a living out of chopping down the trees? No, no, I don't feel that at all. I don't feel like it's a war against like the contractors or anything like that. I do feel like it is like we are pushing against Forestry Tasmania as a government entity that is hell-bent on destroying what's left of our native forests. I mean, we're going to come to a day probably not that far away, a few years away, where we're going to run out of native forests anyway. So I guess we're just trying to push them so that they have to stop earlier so that we can have as much native forest left so that we're not as um, exposed when it comes to climate and and habitat loss and bushfires and all those sorts of things. Uh, I guess some people, you know, I, I I don't know a lot about humans. That's why I studied animals. <laughs> but I do think, you know, some some people are inherently, you know, they want something to fight. Um, but we we make sure that we use our energy um, creatively but um, peacefully. Yeah, but yeah, it is hard to. It, it, you do, when you break it down, sometimes it does feel like a us and them, but uh, really it's us and a system that's put them in this situation that they shouldn't be in in the first place. No, and I, I agree with you that it's like the economic system that's sort of manipulating us like puppets because I, I, my last program was about the wind turbines off Wollongong. Um, and, you know, there's coal miners there who could will lose jobs and have to make the transition but no one seems to have yet yeah. done the full work on making the transition possible so they digging in and then they've got all these allies you know mischievous allies from quite outside even from the united states coming stirring up a lot of media agro um, about mm. turbines you know um, impeding the traveling of the whales well those kind of people were not worried about the whale migration before, but now they're suddenly all on the side of the like it's very um, oh. deliberate and 
ugly. It's become ugly and a lot of the people there are worried too and, and frightened by this kind of hostility that's suddenly come up against them. So I think we're all kind of like pawns in a game, but none of us can quite see who's manipulating the bigger game. But yeah. you're, you're playing a very significant part and I wouldn't be surprised if there would be a flip in, in Tasmania, you know, flipping because yeah. it's been so sustained for so many years. I, I really would like to think that someone is going to say, hey, let's change up what we're doing now and let's, you know, I'd love to think that and um, I'd love to yeah, engage more people to help that switch happen. Yeah. Well, listeners in Melbourne, Sydney may come and uh, is, it, is it sort of an ongoing thing that people can just come or do you have set campaigns where people are invited to come down? Uh, we've always got stuff going on, basically. A lot of it is very, like, we've got a lot of moving parts and something will be happening and then suddenly it's not happening and then we're doing something else. So there's always something to do. There's always uh, different campaigns going on. Forest is just one of the ones that um, the Bob Brown Foundation works oh. with. They also have a um, Oceans and Antarctic campaign. Oh. Um but, yeah, we definitely are very strong on forests because I guess we see the writing on the wall and uh, we want to get there because that will be really good for the planet. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. We've been talking to Dr Colette Harmson, who was arrested just recently with Bob Brown in the Styx Valley and will be in front of the magistrate in April. And I hope we can come back to you then and, and have a good outcome. But in the meantime, there's an election and let's hope there's an even better outcome that there's a, a forest-friendly government comes in. Is there any, are there any candidates who are really talking strongly on that or do you know? Um, I've only just started kind of listening in. Um, I, I, there's certainly no Labor or Liberal candidates who are even remotely interested in in uh, protecting native forests. But uh, I suggest to people to look into all their local candidates and just see if any of them are taking a strong stand on ending native forest logging because they're the ones I'm going to be voting for. Thank you very much, Colette. Together, we can help raise awareness to, um, to lobby, to create a national park, to safeguard this ancient wonder. And it's time to return this land to its owners who have traditional owners who have steward, steward under stewardship uh, this land for millennia. So um, join us, um, donate, share the story, and be a supporter of Decana. You know, if this strikes a chord with you, like to save ancient wilderness in our back garden, and uh, yeah, we we really kind of appreciate your support. Thank you, listeners, for hanging in there. Lots of action for you. Bob Brown Foundation invites supporters and John Grimes invites you to the Smart Energy Conference in Sydney on the 6th and 7th of March. If you're in Melbourne, you can still catch up with some of the main speakers. They publish them at the Smart Energy Council later on. John also said, don't forget to praise the politicians when they make an advance. It may be hard, but give it a try. Thank you tonight to Dr. Colette Harmson in Tasmania, Dr. Freya Croft in Wollongong, and John Grimes, CEO of the Smart Energy Council in Canberra. My name is Vivian Langford. Goodbye and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5 p.m. to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday, 
rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And for Sydney listeners, the Palestine Action Group rally is on every Sunday at 1.30 in Hyde Park near the fountain. I've attended the rallies every week and they've been broadcast on 3CR each Saturday. And as I stand beside old women like me with tears rolling down their cheeks, I realise that action in solidarity with them is also climate action. If we can't have an expectation of life, free speech and a future, what hope can we have of arresting the momentum of climate change? (laughs) 